This is They Create Worlds, episode 30. Doom. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Grey Doom Guy, and I'm joined by my co-host, Red Doom Guy. Hello. This episode, we are obviously going to be talking about Doom. It's something that is a watershed moment between how computer games were really done and thought of in their infancy and how they're done now. And as we continue to delve into this topic, as we look at Masters of Doom and some of the implications of what's gone on, really fascinating to see how, on sober reflection, looking back, it has really influenced not just the PC gaming scene, arcade, consoles, the internet. I could arguably say that some of the internet culture can be directly attributed to how Doom is. Trash talking, for example. Absolutely. And, you know, I don't think it is an exaggeration at all to say that you can really divide the history of computer games into before Doom and after Doom. Obviously, Doom's not the first game that did most of what went on in there. There were first-person shooters before, there were shareware games before, there were multiplayer games before, but it's just that game so fundamentally shifted the way PC games were done, that that is just one of the true watershed moments. And it's a moment that I think Kushner, David Kushner, does a very good job of capturing in in his book, Masters of Doom. And that's really what we're going to be discussing is Masters of Doom, which is a book. I listened to it, narrated by Will Wheaton. I was just so drawn in by the story that really thought it would be interesting to delve into the concept of what's gone on here. How did a couple of effectively kids grow up to make such a powerful impact on the computer industry, on the internet, on society as a whole, almost a culture level impact? Absolutely. And with a company that only really had during most of this period of time four or five people involved with it on a design level. I mean, a very small group of people that, that really just changed all of gaming. I guess really what is at the heart of what's gone on, and this even ties into Alex's research, you have a really duality going on between what is known as the two Johns, John Carmack and John Romero. John Carmack is, for lack of a better terminology, is a genius in Mm -hmm. many, many, many ways. Anything he really applies his mind to, things happen. Innovative things happen. Fascinating things happen. I wonder if there's some parallels between him and his dedication to working on things and, say, Nikola Tesla, who just saw things out there there's a better way of doing this. Let's do this efficiently. Let's do this well and made it happen. Absolutely. I mean, he's truly a tech god. He is probably one of the pure, uh, in terms of pure smarts, one of the smartest people to ever turn his mind 
to video games. And the interesting thing is he was often keyed in to, to where to go next by other people. It's someone would present a, a problem or present something that they'd heard about someplace else, and then he'd be like, yeah, I can do that. And then he'd come up with a way to do it that was just mind-boggling. You know? Right, and it's something that he has harped on time and time again, especially when he was before id, during id. I'm not so sure about after id, but all he wanted to do was sit in his room, work on problems, work and code games, and he wanted a steady supply of pizza and a steady supply of Diet Coke. That's really all he wanted. He slept on the floor for a lot of his time when he was younger. And even when he was working at it, and they already had money coming in from Wolfenstein, he was sleeping on the floor. Sure. And I, I think that's a good point to bring up is it's not just that he was a genius, but that it was an absolute or is an absolute focused genius. All of his being is being put into doing this kind of innovation. And so even though there have been plenty of other good programmers and smart programmers in the video game industry, and many that have done incredible, impressive things, he certainly doesn't have the monopoly on that. I don't think there's ever been anyone quite so zeroed in on making that the whole of his experience and the whole of his being in the way John Carmack uh, was back in the day. I'm not sure if he still is is at that same level of focus today. Certainly got distracted by his work with Rocketry, for instance, for a, for a long time. But it's just that that level of focus. When he decides that he's going to tackle a problem, boy, does he tackle the problem. It is really fascinating. It's almost like a Buddhist mentality of living in the moment where the future doesn't concern him, the past doesn't concern him. There is the moment of solving the problem. And he lives for that. Right. He doesn't think about what could be or what has happened. He, when he was working at it, he had no sentimental things. The only thing being a cat that was gifted to him, <laughs> which once the cat was a problem, got rid of the cat. He kept none of his old games that he made. He was just sort of like, I accomplished this. I proved to myself that this has been done. Meh. Yes. I'm done. I'm on to the new thing. It's probably partially that focus and that uh, inattention to everything that's going around him. I mean, John Carmack was never going to be the next big thing on his own. I mean, he made some very credible games. I mean, his tennis game, one of the first ones he made that was so smooth. I mean, he made some credible games. But it's easy to forget now with John Carmack being so revered as the tech god that when he first met John Romero, who is thought of more today in terms of his design skills rather than his programming skills, that John Carmack was blown away by John Romero's programming ability on an Apple II computer. Which is really surprising because you wouldn't think that from today's standpoint. They originally met at a company called SoftDisk, he was brought in. He was at Softest, went after John Carmack and was constantly going, hey, we want to hire you because you're so awesome. He wanted to maintain his independence so much that he kept turning them down. And it was only after John Romero, after hearing about him, he goes, 
please just give him another call. I want to talk to him. I want to relate with him and see if I can bring him on board because I want a person who is that smart on my team. Exactly. And and it's not like, you know, he wanted to remain his independence, but it's not like it's not like he was wealthy. I mean, the guy was working in a pizza parlor. Yeah. He would rather work in a pizza parlor in Kansas yeah. than work for a software company. Uh, it, it was it was that he hobby. wanted his pizza yeah. and he wanted his Diet Coke and he wanted his games. He didn't care how much money he made as long as he could maintain those three things. He was happy. Right. Uh, but, you know, you don't get it without both of the Johns. No, you and do not. Obviously, David Kushner compares them to John Lennon and Paul McCartney as these two very different, very creative in their own way people that could certainly do some interesting things on their own. Paul McCartney and John Lennon both had careers after the Beatles, though Paul McCartney, I think, overall was the more successful. But when they came together, when they were a collaboration in the Beatles, that's when they did something that changed the world. And this is kind of the same idea. You don't get John Carmack tech god, probably, if he had never encountered John Romero. He probably would have been a very smart coder that someone, if they managed to hire him somewhere, they'd probably keep him off in his room and just keep tossing problems at him, and he would not be heralded as the inventor and creative person he is today. Sure. I mean, it's similar to kind of the, the Waz and Jobs situation. And, and this is a—it's not a perfect analogy. It's a different situation. But the idea that Steve Wozniak was such an engineering genius, but he was happy to just have his job at Hewlett-Packard— and do all of this microcomputer fiddling on the side just for the fun of it and just share it with other people for free that were also tech geeks like him. He never had a concept that his genius could form the heart of a company like Apple. And he didn't have the knowledge or really the awareness of going... And I think a lot of people who are very technically inclined fall into this trap of they don't place the financial value on what their knowledge and their capabilities have. Mm -hmm. They just think, oh, this is easy. This is something that anyone should be able to figure out. Therefore, it doesn't have any intrinsic value unto itself. It just kind of, oh, that's kind of neat that I could do this. Sure. And John Carmack is not... Steve Wozniak, he's not to that degree. Obviously, he's selling his games as a freelancer to Softdisk. So he understands that he is doing something that can bring him some financial remuneration. But it's, it's kind of the same idea that that genius needed to be combined with someone else's genius, someone who had a different type of genius, in order to, to bring him out and to bring his products out. And that's why. You can't talk about the one John without the other John, because alone, they were both good, but it's together that they formed this powerhouse. And it's really, really, really true. Well, first, let's talk about a little bit about John Romero. He was really creative. He made a, a bunch of games on the Apple II and really innovated there. He loved playing games. He still mm -hmm. loves playing games. He played games so obsessively that he would pretty much suffer any wrath, including that of his stepfather, to play a video game. Exactly. And, you know, he was one of these people, one of these very rare people 
that were actually exposed to kind of both sides of gaming in the early days, even though he wasn't a college student, because he grew up loving the arcades and loving to play games like Asteroids, for instance, in the arcades. But then, through a friend, he learned that, hey, there's this place at the university where you can play games for free. So then he discovered adventure. He discovered these mainframe games, these deeper games. So this is one of the few people that that weren't a college student at the time that were exposed to both the quick, fast action of the arcade, but also the deeper simulation and puzzle solving of the mainframe and could merge these two together. And I'm sure that's a, an important part in, in developing some of his, his really great design sensibility. Yeah, it is commented by the owner of Apogee, who it eventually did a lot of product for. Scott, John Romero really, really, really understood the formula of a great game. Easy to learn, hard to master. Exactly. Uh, a, a true lesson, you know, born out of the arcade of that time period. And, and we can't discount his programming genius either. He spent some time in his youth in England. There was a period of time when he didn't have his Apple II because uh, it was being shipped. And so he memorized the, uh, what was it, the opcodes he memorized? I forget exactly, but he, he memorized the calls, I think, the processor calls or whatever, to that computer so that he could program stuff in his head mm -hmm. when he didn't have the computer present. Yep. I mean, that's, that's incredible. We think of him more as a designer today just because at id, John Carmack shone so much more brightly as the tech guy. But boy, on that Apple II was John Romero a tech guy. I mean, this guy has coding shops. Oh, yeah. I mean, he went, he got his dream job at Origin Systems. He wanted to work for Richard Garriott. Mm -hmm. He goes over to the booth at a convention and go looks at the new Ultima game that's coming out and goes, Hey, look at this. Pulls their disc out, puts his disc in, and he does double the resolution, same kind of game as Ultima, but better graphics, better presentation. They offer him a job right on the spot. Exactly. Of course, he doesn't end up working for Origin for long for a variety of reasons, but even that experience is very important to shaping what it became and what Doom became. Because when he was at Origin, he was working for a guy called Paul Neurath, who doesn't get quite the plaudits that I think he deserves. Paul Neurath went on to be one of the founders of Looking Glass Technology, where they created some of the very first 3D kind of RPG exploration kind of games. He was very involved in pushing that side of things. So Ultima Underworld, mm -hmm. which is just a fabulously influential game because it influenced so much that came after it, this 3D role-playing game kind of thing, a little more action-oriented than, than your regular Ultima game. But it had that 3D texture-mapped real-time environment. There had been 3D dungeon crawl-type games before, but they weren't fully real-time. You had something like Dungeon Master, which was an influence on Ultima Underworld, which certainly had that kind of 3D view and that kind of thing going on, but it was still kind of step-based where you're, where you're stepping. It's not smooth scrolling. And so it was hearing 
about Ultima Underworld, then under development, in a phone call where John Romero first learned that, you know, his old mentor, Paul Neurath, was working on this 3D game with texture-mapped environments and whatnot. And then he went to John Carmack and told him that he'd heard about that. You know, do you think that's something you could do? And John Carmack thinks about it. It's like, yeah, I could do that. And that's Catacomb 3D, which is the predecessor to Wolfenstein and is the first game that it made with texture-mapped graphics. Mm-hmm. Catacomb 3D predated Ultima Underworld in terms of coming to market, but Ultima Underworld was in development first. And so you've got that direct link to his origin experience playing a very key role in formulating this first-person shooter concept that, while it didn't create it, they very, very much defined it as a genre. And while both of them are extremely intelligent, extremely capable, there's a sense I got from the book, especially in the beginning, where they didn't really have much of a social intelligence, where they were almost like, if this does not benefit me, or you do not benefit me, I'm just outright cutting you off. I'm not dealing with you anymore. I'm out of here. I'm dealing my own thing. One of their co-workers, Tom, Tom Hall, uh, actually referred to this in John Romero as being a bit flip. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if this is something that is necessary for them in order to achieve what they did or what, but it seems like they originally start working at soft disk. They were moonlighting developing Commander Keen, and they pretty much wanted to leave. Their boss, Al, comes to him and goes, Okay, I know you guys are talented. You're awesome. I'm willing to work with you guys, split a company 50-50, handle the business side of it. But they don't have the social awareness to almost like Fight Club. Do not talk about Fight Club. If you are in Fight Club, they brag about it to the other employees and pretty much Al comes back to a mutiny after lunch and pretty much can't do the deal anymore because they didn't tactfully deal with the situation. They had no social awareness. Absolutely. I mean, they were young and they were brash and they knew that they were hot and and they were. You look at those those two Johns and then... You have to bring in the other guys. I mean, obviously, it was founded by four people from Soft Disk. Adrian Carmack, no relation to John. I think it's amazing that the company ended up having two people named Carmack added, mm-hmm. of all things, that are not related to each other. Adrian Carmack was a very good artist and was very good at pushing into very disturbing imagery. He had worked part-time at a morgue, you know, before that, and kind of really went deep into this kind of disturbing imagery that Which really helped when he started doing the artwork for Doom. I mean, just look at all the visceral things, the imp, the cacodemon, all the artwork, the way the bodies explode and die into a pile. Sure, they needed an artist like that, and I mean, he was very talented. And Tom Hall, of course, with Tom Hall, it didn't end up working out in the long term, but especially in the early going when they were establishing themselves, they needed someone that would ground their ideas into, into a story space and a world space. As time went on, they diverged from that, and it became purely about the adrenaline rush and purely about the design uh, from a gameplay perspective and a technology perspective. 
but something like Commander Keen was largely successful because nothing smooth scrolled really on the PC before. Mm -hmm. But a game like that, which is essentially a Mario clone in a way, needs a kind of unique aesthetic or a unique hook into it as well to get people to want to play it so it's not just another, you know, dime a dozen Mario or Sonic clone. And so Tom Hall kind of created the the universe of Commander Keen, and, and that was important in the early days, even though that contribution didn't end up being something that the company required long term. So you had four guys that were all at the top of their game, even if Hall and, and Adrian Carmack are lesser lights compared to the amazing genius of the two Johns. And and they knew it. I mean, they just knew they were at the top of their game and they were young and they had some swagger and they had some ego. And yeah, so I mean, things worked out that way and, and maybe maybe they could have uh, done better by Al or later better by on. by many people. Or, and say. later on done better by Scott Miller uh, at Apogee or, or whatnot. But, you know, I mean, they were just such talents that they pushed through anyway. I mean, they, they found their company. They moved to the cold white north for some bizarre reason and uh <laughs> and they get a house and they get a business guy and they just start cranking out hits a lot of hits mm -hmm. the big ones that most people know were of course wolfenstein and doom they also came out with commander keen as we said now i know it was kind of fascinating as they were developing these games especially Wolfenstein 3D and even more so with Doom, there was no games really up to this point that portrayed that level of violence, gore, visceral shock. Mm -hmm. Some people thought it was awesome. Others thought new levels of depravity in this video game thing. Sure. Well, I mean, they were coming along at just the right time. I mean, in the very early days of the computer game industry, obviously, even if you wanted to... Uh to have a lot of gore, there was only so much you could do with the graphics. You, you just couldn't go there, really. You could in, in other medium. I mean, there was a, an Exidy arcade game called Chiller released in 1986 that was very notorious for the gore on display as a light gun game where you're shooting it off various body parts and all of this kind of stuff. So not completely unprecedented, but it's not really something you could do very easily in the computer gaming space. And even after the graphics started to improve, you know, PC gaming really in the 80s was kind of for an older crowd. And when I say older, I don't mean seniors. I'm talking about a college age, a little past college age, 20s, 30s. A PC was an expensive enough commodity in the 80s and a... Difficult enough to use commodity in the 80s. We've talked before about the in intimidation of just having a blinking cursor when you power up a machine. That it attracted a kind of older tech-savvy bunch that had the purchasing power and the patience to deal with this stuff. And they tended to like those kind of slower-paced games, the RPGs, the strategy games, military simulations games that tend to have a lot of fiddly bits, a lot of stats, a lot of this and that. Obviously, there were younger people playing computer games then as well. It's not like it was entirely an old man market or anything. But a lot of the marketing was kind of being done to that set. You get here to this time period where the id guys are getting going, and computers are really coming down in price. PCs are 
infiltrating the home like crazy because there's been price wars between clone manufacturers that have brought the price down to a reasonable level. And you have businessmen and whatnot buying a home computer to do work stuff on that then also gets used for other things. Plus, you have this whole multimedia revolution that people think is going to happen where you really have parents fearing that if they don't have a multimedia PC in their home, that their child's going to be left behind educationally. So the kind of social value of computers is rising at the exact same moment that the price is falling. You're opening up computer use to a whole new category of people. More and more people, ordinary people, have access to these PCs at the exact time that people like John Carmack figure out how to harness a PC in a way that is just blazingly fast, which couldn't be done before. You could do it on the Commodore 64, obviously, because that was built largely as a game machine. So it had sprites. It had hardware scrolling. It wasn't a general purpose machine that had to do all of these different kind of things. And honestly, in a lot of early PCs, the graphics were a secondary thought. Oh, four color, four color CGA graphics when the original PC shipped in 1981. Yeah. And I mean, most of the time, most people think of computers as having VGA. You got the VGA mm-hmm. connector. Yep. There's stuff that came before that. That's right. VGA wasn't coming in until the, the late 80s and not really becoming common until the early 90s. And so they're at the right place at the right time. They have the tech to do something faster and more actiony. And they have a market that is growing enough that there's going to be more young people interested in the same kind of fast action stuff getting involved with computers and not just being on their Nintendo systems or whatever. It's kind of time that the graphics are there. And when you have that kind of sophistication, you want to make use of it. And so you're going to get more detailed stuff. And if you're going to make an adrenaline pumping action game, part of that detail is naturally going to be bloodier, gorier kind of things, especially if you happen to have an artist like Adrian Carmack on staff who is kind of really into that kind of dark thing as well. So it's kind of this this culmination of all of this stuff. It's It was going to happen around then. Somebody was going to do it around then. Just so happened it was them. It almost yeah. a perfect storm. You can't have something like it happen now. No, absolutely not. Not in what you would call the AAA space. Obviously, indie gaming is very big today, and you have single individuals or small teams of individuals innovating in the indie space. But usually, even if their gameplay is very cutting edge, their graphics or their multimedia presentation are not compared to the best of what can be done by big teams on console platforms or high-end PC platforms. This was the kind of last period of time, like you said, where you could have a group that we would consider indie today in terms of their formation and in terms of the way they're developing, be able to play in the triple A space and be at the very, very cutting edge of the best technology in terms of graphics and sound and gameplay. Which is really just so fascinating that we grew up when this was happening. And I don't know about yourself. I, by and large, was unaware of it. I know... We played Wolfenstein. We played Doom. I was obsessed with Doom. (laughs) Really, as far as what came to light in this book as to what was going on from their company and marketing, how the software was distributed, 
the social political situation, the fact that you had a convention held by Microsoft and the porting of Doom to DirectX to run on Windows and Bill Gates having a shotgun in a promotional <laughs> video. I had no clue stuff like that was going on. The conventions where they would have tournaments for deathmatch, the mm-hmm. online dial-in play of, with a buddy Doom games. Oh, yeah. No clue that was happening when I was that age. Sure. I I'm, didn't even have a clue that was happening until now when I read the book. Sure. I mean, it's, it's, really, it's the beginning of esports, really. I mean, the id games are the beginning of esports. I mean, they weren't the first competitions ever held. There were arcade competitions held. There were console competitions held. I mean, there were the Nintendo World Championships held every year. It's not like there had never been competition before or tournaments before. But this was really when the idea of esports developed. I mean, you had the first clans, they even called them clans, forming around games like Doom and Quake uh, for doing multiplayer competition. And you had QuakeCon, you know, a convention dedicated to this kind of thing. You had the massive LAN parties where people are coming together to play Doom. It's really one of the important seeds of the entire esports concept. It started there. I mean, Deathmatch, that term is used across all sorts of games now. Deathmatch is a term that was invented by John Romero. Yeah. He invented that. Effectively, Doom multiplayer was an afterthought Mm -hmm. initially. And then once John Carmack got it perfected enough so that, hey, I want you to launch this. And then he saw John Carmack and John Romero in the same room shooting each other. John Romero pretty much loses it at that point and goes, this is so awesome. Right. That that becomes his focus. He starts trash talking as he's doing it. And arguably may have been a very strong genesis point for trash talking in video games. Because I believe one of the early, it brought up in the book where one of the very first Doom tournaments, John Romero shows up there, he's doing his thing, and after he blows someone's away, he starts trash talking, and everyone else is shocked. Right. It's it's a culture that didn't exist yet. And I mean, realistically, again, it's it's a culture that was going to develop as you got a bunch of teenagers involved in playing these kind of adrenaline-pumping games. I mean, without the intervention of John Romero, you'd still get to the same place eventually. But there's no doubt that this was the start of something in some ways a little ugly. I mean, I'm John Romero's in no way a misogynist, so I, I'm not even I'm not even going there. I mean, he's he's married now to to Brenda Braithwaite, uh Brenda Romero now, obviously, who was uh, a developer at, at Surtech with the Wizardry Games. He appreciates strong women. He, he likes strong women, and he's very pro-women. So I'm, I'm not saying that he birthed a, a misogynist or a hateful culture, because that was never in any way anything that John Romero was going for. This idea that of trash-talking and this idea that you get a little bit, uh, little bit nasty <laughs> with each other when you're when you're playing these adrenaline pumping games like like a Doom or a Quake or a League of Legends is something that can certainly be traced back to the culture that id was partially responsible for building. Though again, it's Can we lay it all at their feet? No, certainly not. Yeah. But it's interesting to see that that is certainly like so many other things with id, 
it's a genesis point. This is where we can really definitively point and say, this is where it first happened. Right. And, you know, I mean, games like Wolfenstein and Id are, you know, you can't say it's where gaming grows up. It's, it's the point where gaming both kind of grew up and devolved at the exact same time. Because you had action games that were targeted at children on systems like the NES on the, and on the Atari VCS before that that were generally very simple action games with fairly simple graphics. I mean, even on, even on the NES, which was so much uh, more advanced than the VCS, there was still only so much you could do in terms of animation and colors and all of that kind of thing. And you had PC games that could, or home computer games, I'm not just talking about IBM PC now, I'm talking about Amiga and Atari ST and whatnot as well, that could have more of a level of sophistication to them. But in the United States, and I'm solely talking about the United States, obviously, as we discussed before, Britain uh, computers were targeted at a very different segment of the market. You had a completely different kind of clientele that were not necessarily interested in all of this fast-paced, trash-talking, gory kind of thing. So it kind of comes in right in the middle of that, and it's like, okay, let's make some more sophisticated computer games, stuff that you can't necessarily do on the consoles because the console hardware isn't robust enough. But then let's, let's make those kind of action games uh, and those kind of adrenaline-pumping games that the kids really like. And so the, it's kind of this new niche that didn't exist before id of games for teenagers, college students that are high-quality graphics and sound and whatnot, and, and the fast action and and the gore and all of that. And it's just, again, it's the right place at the right time because you couldn't really do that very well on computer platforms before. They also epitomized the ability to do what people do in coding called crunch time, <laughs> where I believe during Wolfenstein, uh, when they were doing the other episode for it, they were putting in 16-hour days, seven days a week. Well, sure. And if, then if you look a little more in the future at Quake, I mean, they nearly killed themselves getting Quake out. Yeah, definitely. It's something that it's sort of unique for programmers and something that's endemic to not only the video game industry as far as coding goes, but a lot of the IT field where you have people who have, to some degree, the same kind of mentality as John Carmack and John Romero, where they're so passionate about the technology. They're so passionate about learning. They're so passionate about accomplishing that they'll go to any extreme end to achieve that goal. And it's not tempered with a work-life balance. It's not tempered with having their financial goals in mind. It's not tempered with anything, but I want to achieve, make awesome things, code this, play with the technology, and will whatever happens as far as my time, who cares? I'm having fun doing this. And, and they tend to be uh, young people who don't have families, so they don't have to worry about you know, the wife and kids back home that never see them. By and large, yes. It's interesting how it's continued on, and that kind of concept 
it's been going on ever since coders were really became the hot stuff back in the 60s and 70s, where we need to have this thing out, whale and code on it until it gets done. At some point, that needs to not happen anymore. And you look at how it is today, it's 2016. We've had computers for a very long time. The technology has really matured enough that crunch time, while necessary to a certain extent, say the last month of putting something out, should not be the systemic problem it really is these days, where people spend 18 months in crunch mode in order to get a game out, or 18 months, 20 months, a couple years in crunch mode. You have such a small team trying to code this stuff out, and they're coding 18-hour days or whatever. It's amazing. And I'm not sure what the solution is or where the problem may ultimately be resolved. I think, um, Alex, you came up with something analogous to this at another point that had to deal with how Hollywood developed over time with the movie industry. Well, sure. I mean, it it feels almost like the the video game industries developed in such a way that you have studios that employ individuals uh, all year round, you know, full-time employees, and then they put them on this game, they put them on that game, they divide them into teams, they put leads over them, etc. And you don't have very good uh, project planning, and it just gets to be kind of a mess, and you have to wonder if maybe they should go to a more freelance system where... Each project, obviously the publishers fund projects, but they don't keep the technical staff on hand. And each project, they go out and hire the people that they need from the broad pool and just pay them all on a per-project basis and get a really strong team leader together and get the people they need in each area together and and just do it on a project-by-project basis. I don't know that that would solve the problem, but I kind of wonder if they'll move towards that method eventually because it just seems kind of weird that no other entertainment product is made in the same way as video games. But really, I mean, if you want to talk about crunch, I mean, like you said, most of the people involved in the industry get started, uh, and this is especially true back in the day, because they're just enthusiasts. There's no work-life balance because none of it's work. It's all life. I mean, they've decided that this is so fun that I'm just going to do this. And yeah, when you're trying to meet a deadline or whatever, that becomes stressful, and then maybe it's not so fun anymore. But these are the types of people that gravitate towards just coding for the fun of it. And so they're doing it all the time, and they enjoy doing it all the time. But what happened is that game production became more complex because the technology got better and you needed more people. And so you're getting teams, and then you're getting bigger teams, and you're getting bigger teams... And once you get to the point where you're having to employ dozens of people, not all of whom are coders, some of whom are artists and animators and writers and all of these other things. Or they might be coders who don't have that level of interest where they want to code 18 hours a day. Right. Then you get into a situation where it's supposed to be a business now. It's not just a bunch of kids screwing around on their own time and happen to come up with a finished product at the end of the day. There needs to be some organization in there, but you don't have really middle management experience. You have producers, the producer system introduced by Electronic Arts and Activision and others, and that's a system where you at least get somebody on top that's kind of involved in in planning everything and maintaining the budget and all of that who isn't necessarily a game guy. 
but you haven't built internally within the system, you haven't built managers. I mean, your lead, your lead programmer, your lead artist, your lead animator that comes up through the ranks hasn't necessarily been given the proper training when it comes to flow and pipelines and all of that kind of thing and just managing a project. That old adage of you're promoted one level above your highest level of competency. Well, yeah, I mean, there's certainly some Peter Principle stuff probably going on as well, but it's not just that. It's just that the industry, because of the way it developed and the way it's structured, there isn't really a good mechanism for training effective managers and identifying effective managers and promoting effective managers to higher levels. What we've gotten into now, because the first group of people that kind of became middle managers were all these enthusiasts. And so they just programmed for the fun of it, and they didn't necessarily understand the need for for work-life balance, and so they weren't even trying to create a work-life balance. Then we've gotten into a kind of perpetual cycle now where because there's this constant crunch at a lot of companies, not every company, but a lot of companies, the young guys get burnt out by the really long hours, and so nobody is advancing into middle management. They're eating their own young. They're burning out all the talent before they get above the very entry levels. And so you don't get many candidates that kind of survive that environment to get promoted to be leads. And so you don't have the pool that you should have of talent to draw from to identify who should move up the chain because you're grinding most people up. I mean, it's. There's got to be, it feels, seems to me, as admittedly an outsider looking in, there has to be some kind of reform to that system. And it comes down, it really, I mean, could be interesting if they went to a different method of hiring talent, but it, it really comes down to just planning projects better. Because, I mean, the movie industry and the TV industry have been doing this for decades. And yeah, they have cost overruns. They have shoots that run over. They have people working insanely long hours to get something done. It's not like they're well-run machines. But still, they often manage to get a product together relatively on time and relatively on budget. Um, I mean, blockbuster movies, believe me, have all sorts of problems too. And I'm sure they work lots of crunch hours. I'm not trying to, to say that they don't. But it's not systemic. It's not to the point where, okay, I want to make a movie. We're going to now hire a bunch of people, and you're going to be in crunch mode to get this movie out by the summer. It, I want to get a bunch of people get together to get a movie. Okay, we are near the end of this project. We need to get this done by the summer. We have a month or two left to finish this up. Now we need to do crunch time. Sure. But, and, of course, the other thing one has to keep in mind that really sets the video game industry apart is that the technology is constantly changing. I mean, the analogy that other people have used in the past is making a video game is like making a movie where you actually have to, before each movie, you actually have to invent the camera you're using before you even start shooting the movie. I mean, if you had to redo all of the movie filmmaking technology from scratch every single time you shot a movie, well then those movies would never get made, uh, you know, without ridiculous amounts of, of crunch time and, and delays and cost overruns either. There, even though, obviously, technology slowly advances in the movie-making field or whatever, 
a camera today, even a digital camera, as opposed to an old 70 millimeter camera, a camera still works mostly the same way. You still shoot a film mostly the same way. Every video game, especially when you move across technologies and console generations and whatnot, has to get made a little differently than the one before it. The technology is different. You have to build new tools. You have to build new engines. And even though middleware alleviates some of that, you still have to build so many proprietary tools or do so much modification to middleware when you adapt it to what you actually want to do in your own game that you're, you're rethinking the technology every time you go out to make a major product or every other product you make or whatever. And you just don't have that in the movie or music industries. It's something that's pretty unique to technology in general, where it's at such a breakneck speed that you barely have time to become comfortable with what the present is, that the future comes in the next day and you're like, well, now I have all this new stuff. You can see that with graphics. We had TGA, as you said. Then we had EGA, enhanced graphics adapters. Then we had VGA, so on and so forth. We got what we have now with many of these video cards. You're trying to, most people who are serious gamers upgrade their video cards every two to three years. Yeah, and some probably even more than that, because of course, you know, Moore's Law, every 18 months, things get shinier. Yeah, it's insane that that has to happen for them to show the shiniest thing, have the prettiest picture. Well, and it's just when you have to reinvent like that. I mean, to bring it back to the topic of our of our conversation today here, look at the development of Quake. Quake is a game that from a design perspective, they wanted to take in whole new directions based on the D&D campaign that they had been playing for many, many years. They wanted this to be a really immersive, really new, really different kind of game than what they had done in the past. But they also had to create a brand new engine. And this was the first time that they were going fully polygonal. Games like Wolfenstein and Doom existed in the realm of what people like to call 2.5D, colloquially, which is where you have 3D environments, yes, and you have 3D structures, but your sprites, your enemies, I mean, your objects are all still two-dimensional sprites. It's not a fully 3D world. And for Quake, they were going full 3D for the first time. And so this engine was a nightmare. Even tech genius Carmack, I mean, you're talking about one guy building a 3D engine all by himself. And yeah. if it weren't John Carmack, it probably would have never happened, period. I mean, that kind of thing you do with a team. You don't do that with one person. And he did get it done, but it was so delayed, delay, 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 because there were so many problems, holes in the floor and all of this craziness that he couldn't resolve, buggy, 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 that by the time he got that done, there wasn't time, unless they were going to take years, there wasn't time to create an entirely new game concept around that engine. And so, you know, they had the big meeting, uh, you know, as the book describes, and Romero says, you know, we can knock this out in a year or, you know, just make it more of the same, make another Doom-like game, first-person shooter, and, and just get it done with. Or we could take our time and do a couple of years, and we could still implement these wild new ideas that we have. But by this time, even the Crunchers, I mean, they're like, we've been working so long and so hard on this. No, we mm. just need to get this done. We don't want to work on this anymore. 
And so they went the route of just doing another Doom-like game because that was the most expedient thing to do at that point. And of course, that was basically when John Romero decided that he no longer wanted to be involved with the company. When he felt that the technology had taken over too much and the design was not being as appreciated anymore within the company, but it really and comes... also the uh, John Carmack. It, I mean, they fell apart during that time. Mm-hmm. John Carmack looked at what John Romero is doing and goes, "Well, he's out there talking, promoting, doing this other thing. He's not working with me in order right. to really develop this game and really take advantage of this technology that I'm developing." He thinks that he's not carrying his weight. And something that's kind of interesting with Ed is that really the linchpin is John Carmack. Mm-hmm. And he threatens to leave a few times and goes, if this, I'm just leaving. Right. If you patent my technology, I'm leaving. If you do this, I'm leaving. And everyone else realizes if John Carmack leaves, Everything is done. He was the one indispensable employee. I mean, as genius as John Romero is, too, in his own way, John Carmack was the one indispensable employee. There's no question. But, you know, this is this is the perfect example of where having to reinvent the technology every time you want to make a new and exciting game leads to problems. It leads to excessive crunch. It leads to delays. It leads to overruns. And sometimes it leads to pulling back from ambitions for great new game designs just so you can get the blasted thing done already and have a break, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Yeah, we need to have some sort of cash flow, else we can't continue to operate. And that's something that a lot of game companies deal with. You have the bean counters who go, we want you to produce these games so that we have cash flow to come in so that you have enough money in order to develop the dream game. Sure. And, you know, that especially becomes bad if you're a publicly traded company. It obviously was not. But when you have a publisher like an EA or an Activision that's public, they have to hit their quarters. Yep. They have to hit their quarters or no one will invest in them and the, and the stock will be worthless and then they're, they're finished. So companies become very deadline focused as a result. And that's, of course, another thing that leads to this crunch problem because something's got to ship. Now, what the big companies try to do is always have so many balls in the air at once that even if one or two products end up being delayed, they're working on so many different things that they can slot something else in its place. That's how they try to do it, because even the big companies understand that sometimes you just have to delay a game if you're going to make it any good at all. But you do get compromises as a result, because you do get games shipped before their time. EA under Larry Probst was very, very, very strict about you hit your targets. I mean, it was like a religion. You hit your targets. And there were a lot of games at EA that kind of suffered during that time period as a result. Not all of their games, but if a game got off track, there was less of a chance that it was going to be given the time to come together and improve itself. And it was more likely that it was going to come out anyway because you hit your targets. And that's not a problem it had, but that's that's something that also feeds into this larger crunch problem is that sometimes games just take some time. And, and actually, it is a company that had the luxury of being able to take time because Wolfenstein and Doom did do so well. They weren't in a situation where if they didn't publish something right now, the money was going to run out. They were rolling in money. 
when it came to Quake, it's just they were so burned out because mm-hmm. that was such a difficult from a financial perspective, they could have delayed it another year and they'd have been okay financially, most likely. But they just most of the team couldn't put themselves through that. And and you can't you can't blame them. I, not everyone can crunch for two or three years straight. And and nor should they be expected to. Or not just that. People change. Think back if you're young now or you're older when you were younger. A teenager who could just stay up all night doing whatever and then get up in the morning and continue on. They had a lot more energy or a lot more ability to adapt to weird schedules. As life goes on, things get more complex. You get older. You slow down a little bit. You have a family. You have a family. You have a life. And that starts to take its own toll on your time. John Romero started dating after many of the games um, that he completed and had a few different girlfriends. And that took up some of his time. Mm-hmm. I mean, life changes. Life always changes. And just because they they were able to do crunch time and coding is my entire life, that just doesn't happen so much as life goes on. Even John Carmack, who is actually married now, I would think that he spends at least a little time or more time than he used to with his family, doing things as opposed to being solely on whatever he's doing code-wise with his pizza and Diet Coke. Well, sure. And he, you know, he pulled back. I mean, he spent a long period where he was very, very interested in rocketry. There was a period of time when a lot of people thought he was actually going to leave the video game industry because he was becoming so dedicated to rocketry, you know, the kind of things that that SpaceX and whatnot's doing today. You know, he was very dedicated to that kind of thing. When he first became chief technology officer at Oculus, he actually stayed on at id. He was doing both, but very quickly he realized he couldn't really focus on both and, of course, took the amazing step of actually leaving id Software. He was the the last of the founders still there. He kind of forced Adrian Carmack out uh, in the in the 2000s. There was a lawsuit about that. Uh, Tom Hall, of course, was the very first to leave because it wasn't working out during the early days of Doom. And John Romero left because he was frustrated with what was going on around Quake. Uh, and so John Carmack was the last man standing. Now none of the founders are at it anymore. Even he found that he couldn't juggle all of that. So sure, I mean, as time goes on, it's harder to maintain those commitments, which is part of the reason why people are not getting enough people are not getting promoted within the video game industry into higher levels. They tend to just churn through, you know, a lot of the a lot of the creative leads and whatnot are still the people that got involved in the industry in the 80s and 90s when it was a more Wild West kind of thing. There are comparably fewer people getting into high-level positions at, at prominent companies that came in at a later date. And that's not just because Obviously, even in a tech industry, it can sometimes take a while to be promoted, but it's not just that. It's also because it's hard to retain people that are brought in now. It's not as fun. You know, even, even in crunch time, if you're like creating a whole game yourself, even if it's stressful, even if you're not liking it, you can at least say, look at this amazing thing I've made. Now, teams are so big, your job might be putting lampposts on the maps. And mm-hmm. so what do you point to as your creative accomplishment? You see that lamppost next to that house? I'm the one that put it there. I could have put it two inches to the left. I could have put it two inches to the right. But no, I put it right there because that was the spot it should be. 
I, I mean, <laughs> and then the person who's playing the game goes, I mean, is running down a street and has no mental awareness of. So what? It, it's window dressing. Yeah, Who I mean, cares? there's there's nothing to take ownership of. There's nothing that a very low level guy. I mean, obviously, the people that are running things, the leads and whatnot, there's a lot that they can feel good about. But a lot of the low-level guys, if they're just doing lip-syncing for a couple of characters or if they're just putting trees and rocks and lampposts on the map, there's not a, a lot you can take pride in. It really does just become a job at that point. I oh, mean, yeah. there's not much of a thrill to just doing that kind of thing. So you lose that kind of one thing, even if you're even if you're crunching on a game like Doom, where you're designing whole levels yourself, you can at least say, wow, look at that cool level I built. And yeah, this has been hard, but I mean, this level is really awesome. And it works well. It flows well. I have all these secrets. Mm -hmm. These monsters come in. It's great. Yeah. And you just you can't say that at a low level in most games. So it becomes a job for a job to be bearable. It has to, you know, a job that, that is a little less enjoyable, it has to not take over your entire life, essentially. I mean, that just leads to dissatisfaction. It could be that some of these guys would be okay crunching on the type of games that were made in the 80s or 90s because they would at least be so intimately involved. But it's a whole other thing to crunch when your contribution is just a drop in the bucket of a very large and complex game. And so I think that probably plays into it as well. And so it's just very hard to get people promoted to the upper echelons of the industry. And it gets very hard to train and retain good middle management that could go a long way towards streamlining development processes and getting this whole thing under control. And it's It's, it's very much a catch-22 situation. Yeah, it is. I, I really think it is. And again, obviously, we're on the outside looking in. People that are actually involved in the industry may have a, a very different view on things because obviously I have not worked in the industry. So, And my perspective is not necessarily in the video game industry, but it is in the technology, the IT field. Mm -hmm. So I do see some of this. I see the, not the crunch level part of it, but the, I spend a lot of time working on things, but I can't really point at something and say, this is something tangible that I can take pride in me accomplishing. Right, right. And that's really something that has been really integral to society by and large as far as being what you do as far as the job goes. You can sort of see this in some old 1950s, 1930s, 40s, 60s informational videos where they go about talk about taking pride in your job. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're a shoe salesman. But you can take pride in your job because you're helping this person get their shoe, but there's an entire chain that relies on you, and you can take a lot of pride in what you do being integral in order to allow everyone else to continue, the entire machine to continue to work. It's hard to get that kind of perspective in IT, mm. and especially technology. Things change so much. Things ultimately come down to great, a few more lines of code, but how does that really tie into the ability for other people to accomplish things where I can say, hey, I helped create something that allows Charlie to go make more widgets? Sure. And you get into the real problem too, because middle management needs to understand 
you know, if you're going to promote someone to be a lead programmer, they have to be a good programmer because otherwise they won't understand what goes into the project and what their people need. But just because you're a good programmer doesn't mean that you're necessarily a good manager. And so, again, it comes back to that thing. It takes a really rare person to be both a good manager and a good artist or a good programmer or a good this or a good that. And if you burn out most of your people before you even get to the point of selecting your leads, then you're left with a very small pool and you're not necessarily going to have the talent that you need to kind of implement that because they're just, they're just different skill sets. I mean, bring it back to it again. Obviously, John Carmack and John Romero were brilliant. John Carmack is a brilliant programmer. John Romero is a brilliant designer. They certainly weren't managing quality of life at it. And then if you go beyond and look at what John Romero did at IonStorm. Oh, my. Yeah. That was the company where design is law. That was his phrase. Design is law. And we're just going to bring in a bunch of hotshot artists and hotshot musicians and hotshot programmers. And we're just going to be designers running amok and doing all of these amazing things on the top floor of this Dallas skyscraper. And guess what? It didn't work because even though John Romero is a brilliant designer... He was not a manager of men. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's just. There's a lot of things where if it was John Rockefeller or uh, another one of that era where he goes, I can find tons and tons of brilliant engineers and scientists, but it is the rare person who knows that and can be a manager and knowledge of how to interface with people. Right. You know, I think it's fair to say that if from when it comes to programmers, Obviously, there's artists, designers, writers. There are a lot of other people involved in the video game industry now. It's not just programmers. When it comes to programmers, it's a stereotype. And it's as a stereotype, it's not fair. And there are plenty of programmers that aren't like this at all. But a programmer tends to be the type of person that is interested in figuring out how a system works. They like having control of a system. When you talk to a lot of the people that got involved in computer games and video games in the very early days, and you ask them how they got started with computers, it's that, you know, someone showed them a little bit of programming. They were like, this is amazing. I can type something and the computer will do it. I have full control over the system. And it's a system that they can learn and they can learn to fully understand and they can learn to control. That type of person isn't necessarily as interested in trying to master something as chaotic and uncontrollable as interpersonal relations. And they really, really thrive on structure. Exactly. And a computer provides the ultimate structure. Exactly. And interpersonal relations, uh, as rewarding as they can be or as fun as they can be, are never going to give you that same level of structure or control. And so a lot of these, pro- and that's, I think, part of the reason, playing a pop psychologist here, that a lot of these programmer types are often the types that are more withdrawn and more insular and more averse to social interaction is because of that mindset. And so, of course, it's very hard to find. I mean, it's a rare person that is a great programmer, but is also comfortable with that social interaction. Obviously, they exist. Uh, You know, stereotypes don't apply to everybody. But that's, that's part of the challenge. And, yeah. It's crazy. It's, it really is crazy. I guess where to go from here is maybe a little bit more into Doom itself. We sort of glossed over a little bit of the history, and I know the story of it is pretty well known out there, especially as a result of this book, Mm. Masters of Doom. Right. So I don't want to really just sort of like rehash the book so much as 
maybe some of our own experience, we both did end up playing Wolfenstein and we both ended up playing the shareware version of Doom. You actually bought the I did, full yeah, version. Yeah, I did actually buy the full version of, of Doom. I sent away for the discs and all that. Right. And uh, recently, because of this book, I was trying to find my own discs of Doom and couldn't. So I just ended up rebuying it on Steam. Mm-hmm. We're starting a little uh, playthrough of doing the old school Doom as I got two computers set up here to do that. But what really attracts you to the game, Alex? What What is it about Doom that says, wow, this is fun. This draws me in. I want to continue to sit here and shoot imps. Sure. Well, I mean, you know, I was always drawn to to shooting games. Uh, you know, talk about things like Contra or Guerrilla War or whatnot in the arcades and, and on the NES. So there, there's always something, you know, when, when you're a young guy that's kind of, adrenaline pumping about that kind of thing but you know it's 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 that combination i mean the first person perspective makes it more immersive i mean it really does it draws you in more and then it's just it's so fast and smooth i mean there had never been first person games that were that you know i was exposed to that were that smooth and that fast and you just got you know, the, the environments were perfect, the sound effects, the lighting. I mean, in Doom, the lighting is such a, a big part. Oh, yeah. And it's just, it's just, it gets your blood flowing in a way that games before that just quite simply did not. But then also, it's like, I know you haven't really gotten into more of the modern shooters. Right. Uh, yeah, right. I mean, it's still, it's... I mean, how do I put it? It's it's a little simpler, obviously, which, you know, is fine when you don't want to learn a bunch of complex mechanics. And it's just, they're made, those levels were made to just kind of get you through them as fast as possible. Kind of the id mindset uh, on both Wolfenstein and Doom was that anything that slowed down the action is something that should not be there. I mean, as I think people know, Wolfenstein 3D, the concept was based on Castle Wolfenstein, which was an older game from the early 80s put out by Muse Software, made by Silas Warner. And it was not a pure action game. There were a lot of stealth elements. People today kind of retroactively label it kind of the first stealth action game in kind of the Metal Gear, Metal Gear Solid vein. Originally, they had some of those concepts in Wolfenstein 3D, the idea that you might drag bodies to hide them, for instance, so that you're not discovered and whatnot. And they very quickly realize it's like, no, this slows down the action too much. The thing that's great about this game is that there's just action, action, action. I open the door. I see three guards and one SS soldier. I mow them down. I pivot around, and there's two of them coming at me from yeah. behind. I mow them down, kick open the next door. And, you know, modern shooters tend to, tend to be based around a series of, of discrete encounters and discrete challenges. Uh, obviously, AI is better and whatnot. And in a lot of ways, those make for deeper, more immersive games. Mm-hmm. They do, especially something like Half-Life, which, which I also do enjoy. I mean, I don't dislike Half-Life, that um, puts a, a layer of story on top of it as well. That's all good. But, you know, Doom, it's just... There's a horde of enemies. It's just a horde. And you go through and you mow them all down. Then you hit a switch and that causes enemies to come in from all sides, you Mm -hmm. know, from secret panels that open. And it's just, it's nonstop, just kind of... Free range rail shooter. Yeah. And that's just a different vibe. I don't really want to learn... 
and this is just me personally, I'm not poo-pooing modern shooters as being bad games. It's just I tend today to play more RPGs, story-based games, because that's just the thing I'm more interested in personally. But I can still go back and have fun with Doom because I don't have to learn some kind of complex system. I don't have to learn the fiddly bits of how these weapons work or how these encounters work. It's just, you know, here's a level, here's some, here's a shotgun, here's a bunch of enemies, here's some switches, you know, go to it, Tiger. So, you know, (laughs) that's, there's a simplicity to it that I think still draws one in, in, and that more complex modern shooters have lost that simplicity a little bit, uh, and for better or for worse, you know, obviously there are advantages to that as well. Definitely. It's something that does have a degree of simplicity, but also has a degree of complexity to it that is still engaging. There are people who still, to this day, put out Doom levels. Oh, sure. I believe there was one recently where... It's like gigantic. Yeah, 300 hours. Right. Yes, because he like took four huge levels and then stuck them all together by using a central hub to put them all together. Yeah, I read about that too. Yeah, it's just that... Today, it's like 2016, they came out with a Doom level that's that huge. And the thing about the Doom engine is it it's not like how modern 3D engines are, where they load certain sections as the player goes to it. In Doom, it loaded everything. That's why you can see all the way out to the skybox, mm-hmm. because you can. It's all loaded, everything. So if it got too big, technically... The reason some of the maps were smaller is because if it got too big, then you can't transfer the map. Right. Now, of course, you know, the genius thing that they did in terms of keeping it smooth and and loading everything and whatnot is that, you know, we talk about being a 3D game, but really it was it was really 2D. It, mm-hmm. was, it was the illusion of 3D. And if you use a Doom level editor, you build those levels entirely in two dimensions. You know, you build a wad file by drawing lines, just flat lines, not polygons or anything. It was really a 2D game in its entire conception. It's just that because there was a Z-axis to it, you could do height adjustments, but it was fundamentally a 2D game presented in a 3D format. And that's part of what allowed them to make it so fast and uh, so expansive like that. Yeah, and it just took advantage of what they could get away with at the time. Mm -hmm. The fact that a computer didn't have the capability to really do true 3D at that time. Mm -hmm. That John Carmack was able to fake it into this 2.5-ish thing. Right. It's amazing. You can actually play Doom on modern systems. That's how Alex and I were playing it. They actually render everything in a actual 3d you can look around in 3d right mode now right with just loading the old wad files and you look at the assets and you get like if you can get up really close to say like a dead end for a bell and if you look straight down at it you can see that it looks like a cardboard cutout mm-hmm. but at a distance it looks like it's part of the 3d thing and that's what's so genius about how it was set up that yes you had this forced perspective always straight ahead so that no matter how you were looking at things, it always looked like it was this great 3D realm, but really it was an optical illusion. Right. For instance, you could never pass under something. You could never have like a ramp up above and then have your character pass 
underneath that platform because they did varying heights. They gave the illusion of that, but you couldn't actually have something directly on top of something else because it was fundamentally a two-dimensional game, it just in a 3D perspective. And they didn't get that capability till Quake. Right, and of course, Quake is really the game that it was coming right when 3D graphics acceleration was coming out, and it's really the game that was the killer app that got people to start buying 3D graphics cards because yeah, the Voodoo, mm-hmm. uh, the Voodoo video card, which um, I think my first 3D one was a Voodoo three, 3D FX, was one of the companies that really helped pioneer this, and you can see the difference. One of my favorite games that was a first-person shooter that I played at the time, and probably still is now, is Tribes, mm-hmm. Dark Siege Tribes. I played it, and it was 3D rendered in software, so it's really pixelated, blocky, still playable, still fun. What happens if I get this video card, this 3D FX video card, Voodoo 3, for my birthday, and shove that into the thing? Oh my god, it's so pretty. (laughs) Absolutely. And, uh, you know, you mentioned 3DFX and how Voodoo was dominant in the early days. And actually, that's a perfect example of how Quake could really make or break a company producing 3D graphics cards. Because, of course, today it's, it's OpenGL. You know, it's that open, uh, open source uh, system that everyone uses. And both OpenGL and Direct3D, the other major competitor, they both existed at this period of time. While they existed from the very early days, they were very primitive back then because they were these open standards, and open standards always take a long time to kind of develop. And so what allowed Voodoo to take an early lead is that 3DFX had their own proprietary system. Hmm. I remember that. That they used for their 3D graphics acceleration. Because OpenGL and Direct3D were so primitive back then, it was much better. What eventually killed 3DFX is that over time, OpenGL and Direct3D became very good. And so then there was no advantage to having a proprietary system like 3DF, uh, like 3DFX had anymore. So companies like NVIDIA and ATI that used these open standards could start running rings around 3DFX. When Quake came out, Quake did OpenGL because Carmack didn't believe in doing a lot of work for proprietary systems. He had a very strong belief in the hacker ethic. Exactly. So he didn't want to do a bunch of special stuff or special things. So the game did not support the voodoo cards. What 3DFX did is they implemented something called mini-GL. They implemented just enough of OpenGL to get Quake to work Hmm. with a 3DFX graphics card, with a voodoo graphics card or graphics accelerator. That's how important Quake was, that a company that was insistent that it would only use its own proprietary technology when met with a John Carmack who refused to adapt it to their proprietary technology, actually met him halfway and implemented part of that non-proprietary system to get it to work. That's how important id was, and that's how important Quake was 
at that period of time. I mean, they were the premier developer in the computer game industry. It was mentioned in a book. Pretty much id had the top charge of shareware software. Oh, sure. They dominated that segment. Between and Commander Keen, between Wolfenstein, Doom. It's amazing. Right. But of course, they eventually went retail. I mean, Doom 2, for instance, was retail. I mean, they kind mm-hmm. of, they wrote shareware as, as far as they needed to. And then once they had kind of that cachet, they started really getting away from it and doing more retail. Uh, GT Interactive is the publisher that they ended up going with at first. And I've interviewed the founding CEO of GT Interactive, Ron Chamowitz, and you know, he recruited them very heavily. I mean, when he was starting up that company, and they were strictly a publisher, they didn't have in-house talent. Uh, he was a record industry executive. He understood the concept of a publisher going out and finding talent. And so he was going to all the trade shows to try to sign up what developers he could to publish under this new GT Interactive label. And he very quickly zeroed in on the id people as people to do business with because their games were so incredible. And so he met with them and he got a retail deal sorted out. Later on, they switched over to Activision, but their you know first few retail games came out through GT Interactive. You know, shareware just wasn't as useful anymore as it had been. I mean, with the internet coming along, it was a lot easier for word of mouth on hot new games to travel. You didn't necessarily need that shareware demo to like lure people in anymore in a period of time when it was hard to get the word out about your game. Plus, shareware had just, I mean, there was, as with any new platform, it's great when you get on early because good products sell a new distribution platform. Mm -hmm. But then once the distribution platform's established, everyone rushes in to try to get their piece. I mean, you look at the, at iTunes, at the Apple store, I mean, it's just, It's impossible to find good games if you're just like randomly searching anymore because it's just so overstuffed. Same thing with the Android marketplace. Exactly. It's just, and that's where marketing becomes important again. So it's the same with shareware. I'm sure you remember Best Buy's shareware aisle back in the day where they would have all of the free programs on floppy or CD. You mean the aisle I avoided. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was crap. I mean... Shareware just became shovelware. And so once you were established like it was, there really wasn't that much benefit to continuing to use that model. So, of course, they went to a retail model, which they've retained ever since. I think Quake was the last time that they actually even did a shareware version. And and in that case, I believe the shareware and retail were basically simultaneous releases. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. there wasn't really any point to the shareware release, quite frankly. Yeah, and same kind of oversaturation you can see asserting itself with Steam, in fact. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Where there's so much stuff. You have all of these early access. Everyone got onto the early access bandwagon. And it's playing out again. Really, honestly and truly, playing out again. Where so many people see a way to make money. They all rush in. Few good games are curated to the top. Exactly. and that's. And that's why, I mean, this is a bit of a tangent, but that's why the publisher will never really go away. I mean, there was kind of this thought when this indie games movement started and when the smartphone market really started, there was kind of this idea that a small developer could put a game together, could release that game, and they didn't need a publisher because they could directly put that game onto the Apple Store, onto the Android Marketplace, onto Steam. Didn't need a publisher to do it for them. but 
that's true in the beginning when there's very few products in those spaces. When you have few developers, it is viable. When you exceed some sort of critical mass, you can't do it anymore. Right, because then you need marketing. Even if you don't need someone burning CDs or stuffing boxes like you did in the old days with a publisher, you need marketing. And the only people with enough money to do effective marketing are the publishers. A developer does not have the money to do the kind of marketing necessary to get a product noticed. Especially a new developer. Exactly. So, so the publisher then comes back into it. I mean, you'll never get rid of publishers. They may change. They the nature. May, right. How they advertise, how they get the word out there may change. But ultimately, you need an ad agency. A, mm -hmm. someone who can say, you're awesome. Let me get your story heralded out there. Exactly. That's, that's basically what always happens. I mean, in a way, now it was published. It was published by Apogee. It was another company. Mm -hmm. But in a way, it started out without a quote-unquote publisher. Because even though they, they had a publisher, that, that publisher was not a traditional publisher. They were, they were doing that whole shareware thing. You know, at the end of the day, they went back to retail publishing at the very end. And because that was just kind of what, what you had to do. You couldn't make it in shareware once everybody decided that shareware was the way to get rich. And it's the same with the Apple Store. It's the same with Steam. It's the same with Xbox Live Marketplace mm -hmm. or PlayStation Network or all of these platforms. It's like, yeah, you can get product out there cheaper than you ever could before. Distribution costs are down. Right. But you still need to get noticed. And there'll always be a few top-tier games that get noticed regardless because the gaming press will fall in love with them. Mm -hmm. But for the vast majority of games that are competent games, that are games that can certainly entertain you for a few hours, but they're not just the most brilliant game ever made, that may still be worth buying but aren't worth fawning over if you're a game journalist or a game enthusiast, those games are never going to get noticed unless they have marketing behind them. And they will never get marketing behind them unless they have a publisher. Yep. And, you know, it obviously saw the same thing. And, of course, then, you know, going way forward in the story, even beyond where Master of Doom is, it got to the point that AAA development was so expensive that in the AAA space, you couldn't even be an independent developer really anymore. It was one of the last independent developers of AAA games that, had, that was going way, way back into the 90s. Almost all of them had been scooped up, but id kept going. They published through Activision, but they were an independent company. Finally, it got to the point that that just wasn't working for them anymore because publishers didn't like giving a lot of money to independent developers anymore because game development had become so expensive and so risky that they didn't want to invest in something that they didn't fully own which is why the independent developers started slowly vanishing one by one. And then, of course, id was finally purchased by ZeniMax Media, the parent company of Bethesda, and is now part of ZeniMax, along with Bethesda and a couple of other studios. Because really, the, the day of the independent developer in the AAA game space is essentially over. The only ones that really still exist are the ones that have something else going on. So Valve, not that they make many games anymore, is still an independent developer because they have Steam on the side. Constantly giving them money. Epic, 
not that they make very many games anymore, is still an, able to be an independent developer because they're in the engine business. They sell the Unreal Engine to Which everybody. Which is ubiquitous in so many games. It's almost like I've, I've seen it as the Unreal Visual. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You play a game, and it's like, yes, this is using the Unreal Engine because it has this level of smoothness. Mm -hmm. It has this way it's doing a perspective of uh, this way of doing light. Mm -hmm. It some people like it, some people don't. Some people like it. It applies well for certain games. It applies poorly for others. I said I like Tribe. There was a remake. There was a new version of Tribe called Tribe's Vengeance that actually uses the Unreal Engine. Right. I actually hated that game because <laughs> it used the Unreal Engine. I I loved the engine that they wrote for the original Tribes, and I loved the engine they wrote for Tribes Two. And I love the feel of it, the way the game played, the feel of how things happen. I played Unreal Tournament before, and it's fun for its own thing, but I didn't want Unreal Tournament with jetpacks. Right. I, I get you. Yeah. And so, you know, today there are virtually no independent develop developers left in the AAA space unless they have another product category that allows them to stay independent for a completely different reason. I don't think Epic would still be an independent company if they weren't licensing their engine to Definitely. everybody in existence. You can follow the, the path just to kind of bring it back and kind of bring it, I guess, to a conclusion. You can really follow the path of the video game industry's maturation through the id story. We kind of hinted at this, but id was the last came about at about the last time that a small number of people that were highly talented could come together, form a company, and create a hit product. That's something that happened all the time in the 1980s, but it, it happened very rarely in the 1990s, and it was one of the last ones. because And it's next to impossible to happen now. Right, because that was the last point that the technology was still manageable, the cutting-edge technology was still manageable for a small team. They're one of the last of the classic hacker-like game studios. And then they found a method of distribution that was very indie-ish. It's, it's in a way kind of shareware is kind of the first indie movement. Now, there was stuff before that. Um, obviously, you had BBSs, people uploading games to BBSs before that. You had people submitting games to magazines. I think we talked about this in one of our other episodes, but there's always been this undercurrent of there's new cheap platforms for people to get independent game development out. Mm -hmm. But this was kind of shareware was kind of the first indie craze. So it's like they they represent the last of that 80s mentality of let's get a bunch of talented people together and found a game studio. They represent kind of the beginning of that indie game mentality, which is okay, we're a bunch of talented guys that have gotten together and formed a studio. Now let's use a cheaper and more subversive distribution method to get our game out to a wide audience without getting involved with a major publisher. And you have that through their move to shareware. Then you see the, the inevitable cycle of having to move to traditional publishers because of a space becoming overcrowded. Uh, which is what happened in shareware, and, and they went to retail publishing. And then they were one of the last of the independents in the AAA space. And you can follow this story to the conclusion and see how 
the the independent AAA developer really vanished in the face of increased risks and rising development costs. So right there, you see so much of the history of the evolution of video game development and distribution all encapsulated in a single company. That's quite true. Not to mention the whole maturation of the video game genres with violence, gore, and... Right, and all the all the internet stuff and multiplayer that we barely even touched on. I mean, there's just so much you can say about it. Right. Well, since that was a broad overview of it and all the chaos thereof, we could probably ramble on and on at some other point about them and uh, bring them into the global conversation, so to speak. Sure. I think that's pretty much it for now. So uh, where do we want to delve into next time? Well, I think that uh, a good companion to kind of the id story is the story of Epic Games. Hmm. Because they came about at roughly the same time and came about in roughly the same manner in terms of moving through the shareware space. They were published by Apogee at first. And moving from there into doing groundbreaking work in first-person shooters than beyond, though, of course, they have the added wrinkle that they went from pure game developer like id into that engine business. So I think uh, a good kind of complementary story to what we talked about today would be to look a little bit at the, the history of Epic Games. All right. We will go into the Epic next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at tcwpodcast.podbean.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com, email us at tcwpodcast at gmail.com, and follow us on Twitter at tcwpodcast. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license.